Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Sandra Robertson, the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of OU Endowment Management, a subsidiary company of the University of Oxford that manages the $4 billion sterling Oxford Endowment Fund. Simply put, she is one of the most respected endowment managers in the world. Our conversation covers Sandra's start at the Wellcome Trust in the mid-90s, her arrival at Oxford in 2007, Oxford's investing lens across inefficiencies, talent, and themes, decision-making, behavior and actions in volatile markets, private equity fees and alignment, and ESG. Our conversation took place at the very beginning of March's market volatility. 
tune back in on Thursday for an update on how Sandra is operating in this new environment. Please enjoy my conversation with Sandra Robertson. Sandra, thanks so much for doing this. It's my pleasure. Well, why don't we just start with your background and how you got initially interested in investing? Well, I wasn't somebody who read the Financial Times growing up. I actually wanted to be a ballet dancer, then a journalist. I did a general degree in business, did a lot of theory, capital asset price model, absolutely convinced myself that nobody used this stuff. And when I graduated, the notes all went into my parents' loft like everyone else. But I really fell into it. I bumbled into investing. I, After I graduated, graduated in 91, which was a pretty rough time in the UK, particularly for graduates. There weren't many roles. I was in Edinburgh at this point. Worked for a short time for a stockbroker, a very old-fashioned stockbroker. It doesn't exist anymore. It's been emanated out of existence. But my goodness, that was an eye-opener for me. What was it that opened your eyes? <laughs> it was when, at that point in the UK, there was a lot of systems changes. So it was going from old ledgers, essentially, handwritten notes as to what their clients owned, onto some system. I can't even remember what it was called. And I came into the office. It was all male-dominated. There was no women in this office, and you could smoke in the office, which was, to me, just appalling. I couldn't believe this. And I probably spent about three or four months just actually trying to figure out what their clients owned. And their clients would be so grateful when I figured it out. It was wonderful. But it was only a temporary position, and I didn't want to stay in that environment for my health more than anything else. But, you know, I worked with really nice, smart people, but I just knew that environment wasn't for me. And then I went to work for a bank in their international banking division. Again, it was a sort of temporary role. It wasn't a graduate position. And I really enjoyed that. One of my favourite things was I was in the international checks division for a couple of months. And uh, if ever you've tried to get a bank to cash a cheque in a different currency and it sort of disappears into the system. Well, it could be in a tin somewhere in a cupboard in the International Cheque Department. And honestly, I did find a biscuit tin full of cheques that people had just found too difficult. But it was great. You know, I was phoning up Italian banks. It was just investigative. It was lovely. It was, and again, a lot of satisfied customers. So, so that was great. But then in 1993, I left Edinburgh, decided I would go down to London. And I was going to work for a year and then go travelling. That didn't quite work out, that plan, because I got down and I registered with a temp agency, as we all did in those days. And I was going to actually start JP Morgan in the swaps department. It was fantastic. It was full of, in those days, London was full of Australians, Kiwis, South Africans who would all come over work really hard and then go off traveling and particularly in the swaps department those days you know you were working 12 15 hour days so I just could see the money in that but before I started there I was phoned up by the agency and they said um we've got this charity and they don't really know if they need somebody full-time but they really like your CV would you go and talk to them I was like, oh, no, how much are they going to pay me an hour? I don't really want to work for charity. You know, bearing in mind I had this goal of going off to travel. And so I was only really interested in how much money I could earn. But I went to meet them and it turned out it was the Wellcome Trust. 
They didn't have an investment team at that point. They'd hired in somebody from the Civil Aviation Authority who used to manage their pensions. He wasn't quite sure how he was going to do this. They literally had two and a half billion pounds in the bank and a blank sheet of paper. There was nobody like them in the UK. And a little bit of background about Wellcome was that when Sir Henry Wellcome, who was an American, died in 1936, he left the company to the charity. So the company was actually called the Wellcome Foundation and the charity was called the Wellcome Trust. And the trust really did learn uh, lessons in terms of having all your eggs in one basket. Their sole asset was the Wellcome Foundation. Of course, it was a pharma company. Fortunes were rising and falling in pharma in that area. But the chairman of the Wellcome Trust's father had been a trustee of a, a trust called the Nuffield Trust. It used to be one of the largest in the world. Its main asset was the British Mortar Corporation. And of course, you know what happened to that. So he was determined that the trust and the other governors around the, the, the table would diversify its assets. So IPO in 1996, I think, and then a large share placing in 1992. So we had this money. How were we going to invest it? So it was myself and my boss, and we began the journey building up the Wellcome Trust portfolio from then. You're two years out of college. How did you start to think about what you were going to do with this pile of money? Well, I realized people used all this stuff I'd learned in university for a start. <laughs> so that was a bit of a surprise to me. I had fantastic teachers. The Wellcome Trust uh, was headed by scientists and to get to the top of your field in science you have to be a little bit of a maverick and our investment committee they put together were all very entrepreneurial and so I had great people to learn from it was all about how to make money not outperform your peers or outperform a benchmark it was this is money this is not pension fund there's no money coming in you're not matching liabilities you actually have an asset and this trust has been charged to exist in perpetuity. So how do you do that? We invested in venture capital. And, you know, I must confess, I didn't really know what it was. But we'd make trips to the Valley in Boston. And we were the only UK investor at that time. So we were novel. Private equity, before these were industries. And we just had great fun. Because we were encouraged by this investment committee who were all experienced investors themselves. So outside of the notion of diversifying somewhat away from the foundation, the business, how did you get into venture capital, private equity? So our chairman was at that point, at Sir Roger Gibbs, very involved with the Getty family and the Getty Foundation. And through that had met Jim Bailey, one of the founders of Cambridge Associates, who at that point had one office in Winthrop Square in Boston. And Jim and his team said, look, you're very similar to a US foundation endowment. Let us work with you, introduce you to this group of people because there wasn't anyone like us in the UK. At that point, Oxford and Cambridge weren't managing their endowments in this way. And there was really only pension funds. And pension funds have come under a lot of pressure and regulation and so the way they invest today is very different from perhaps the way they invested 25 years ago which was a little bit more similar to ours as but not quite the same so with venture capital it was jim that introduced us to this whole idea and one of our 
governors had himself been a venture capitalist, so he thought it was a splendid idea that we did this stuff. So, you know, Sandra, go out and find some groups. And as you learned how the U.S. endowments foundations were investing their money in that type of a model, what parts of it did you embrace and what parts of it did you tweak? So I think for Welcome, we always did our own thing and we were always comfortable doing our own thing because we were the only one. So it was lovely to meet people out at limited partner meetings who were doing similar things to us. But we never looked at somebody else's asset allocation and said, oh, we should have that. It was very much a bottoms up. These are great groups. We really like this area. And it was very much about absolute return investing before that was its name, but also about backing talent and individuals as well. And that was one of the things that came very much through our investment committee, I suppose, because they were all experienced investors. So... We probably had a lot more in UK property, and we always did that directly at Welcome. Done that at Oxford as well. We were always very international. So one of the things that I'm quite envious of my peers in the US is that currency, currency hedging, currency volatility has always been part of our playbook because really sterling, although it's an important world currency, most hedge fund managers don't get paid in sterling or venture capitalists. So we've always been super international in everything we've had to do. So that's perhaps just a little bit difficult. We didn't have the big home market that our peers in the US have had. How do you think about that currency issue? It's so ingrained in what you do that whenever I think about the US, sterling or cable as it's known in the UK is one of the biggest impact on our portfolio. But what you have to understand for a sterling investor in times of stress, it's good to own dollars. It's not good to hedge your currency because a big cash drain. And is the, well, we can talk welcome trust now, but is the spending of the welcome trust sterling denominated? Well, it was very much then. It's morphed now that it's much more, I think it might be half and half. I'd have to check with the investment team there, but it's much more international today. And did you have to then consciously make a call on currencies? Yeah. You're never trying to guess what's going to happen to the dollar on a daily basis, but directionally you can tell in a risk-off environment that the yen and the dollars are going to strengthen against the pound, so you have to be very aware of that. And how did you calibrate it in the context of the whole portfolio? Well, actually, when you're investing long-term money, it's quite difficult because the instruments you've got to hedge currency are very short-term, whereas you're hedging long-duration assets. So... There was never a correct formula, to be honest. It was a lot of our CIO's judgment. Yeah, and how much did it change? Oh, my goodness. I think under different CIOs, it changed quite a bit. I mean, we've changed at Oxford our our levels over the year. You tend to find we have periods like this. We would hedge less of our, our overseas assets. So you stayed at Wellcome for how long? 14 years. Yeah, so when I started, we had two and a half billion pounds. When I left, it was about 15. Yeah, we had a great journey, built a great team as well. And what evolved over that period of time in your thinking? I think it was growing different types of investments. A great thing about Wellcome was we tried everything. We tried co-investing, direct investing, emerging markets, very emerging markets, markets that never quite merged. We did hedge funds, but never really thought of them as an asset class. We were always encouraged to look at new things, but very much focus on the amount of pounds, millions you could make, 
as opposed to outperform a benchmark. And we always had that freedom and it was fantastic. But going from two and a half billion to 15 billion means that some of the funkier stuff we did was just that little bit harder. And to make, we always focused on contribution. It had to be, really had to make a difference to the bottom line. And that's tougher as you get bigger because your check sizes are bigger as well. And so that sort of takes you out of some parts of the market. So was there a particular time at Welcome when there was a, call it, funky investment opportunity that you either loved in the portfolio or were looking at that you realized, we just can't do this or it's not going to be material? It got harder, particularly with venture. And this was the days before the full stack venture funds. And that was hard. You know, one of the first venture investments we made was with the guys at Benchmark who were in their first fund, I think. Welcome, we had $10 million in that. They didn't grow their funds very much. But I think that was tougher in terms of just venture. It was harder to back smaller venture funds into five, $10 million tickets or do a small co-investment with five or $10 million. That was tougher, yeah. And is that what you mean by funky? Venture funky? <laughs> yeah, venture was funky and or just new groups or new ideas or new markets. And so what was the impetus for you going to Oxford? Weirdly, it was my CIO, Danny Trull, who sadly passed away last year, but he had come from Goldman. And you know, one thing about they developed their people. And so that was very much, <laughs> even Danny said to me, I don't understand why you didn't go for my job as CIO. I said, well, I don't think I was ready. And he said, no, I think you're ready to be a CIO. And the team was bigger, it was more mature, and we'd stopped that phase of fast growth. And we were into a little bit more period of consolidation. And I was approached about one role in the UK to start up an office for another university. And I said, no, it's not for me. And then Oxford came calling and I had vague connections with Oxford but I didn't go to Oxford University and I said no about eight times but they kept coming back (laughs) and I said no I'm not going to come because you're not going to pay me any money you're not going to give me any resources and they said look you are involved with the university and I had been involved with college why don't you just meet the new chairman of the investment committee and see what you think oh that's always dangerous (laughs) And the way that they had thought about it, that they were going to structure it, the role of the CIO was going to give me the opportunity to effectively build a business as well as an investment portfolio. And I looked at the portfolio Oxford had at that time and I thought, oh my God, this is arguably the world's best university and look at its investment portfolio. And its endowment at that point was 400 million pounds after a thousand years that was not good and so for me it was just a great opportunity and what year was that that you came across 2007 what was that first year or two like you're kind of going through the financial crisis with a portfolio you probably didn't love at that point in time it was really interesting so there was no infrastructure at the university it had been done by a committee and a treasury team And one of the things that Oxford has done is we've actually set up a separate investment management company. The first thing I did was hire my 
chief operating officer from the Wellcome Trust. And I did have to go and beg forgiveness from Danny for stealing her. But I wanted somebody I knew and trusted. She'd been fantastic at Wellcome. She understood all the various asset groups. She was a chartered accountant. So really needed a good right-hand person, right-hand man, but she's a woman. So what did we do? Well, we set around trying to figure out actually what assets the endowment fund owned because in a university that's not always quite clear. There can be a little bit of fudging that goes on between things that have been gifted that they can't sell. And So I said nothing can be in the endowment pool that I can't sell. So there was a little bit of organisation that way. We had to put a custodian in place. We had to put a separate banker in place. And we were starting all of that Um, Within about two months, I was called to a meeting and it was with the vice chancellor and then one of the colleges (laughs) and it's very public and Mike Moritz of Sequoia. I said, oh, hi, Mike, how are you? Didn't know you were an Oxford alum, which was quite foolish of me, given that we'd been a big investor in Sequoia. And Mike was absolutely determined that if he was going to give money to his old college and to the university, it had to be properly managed. And so therefore, any donation he was going to give to his college had to be managed by me in our new business, which is not actually that straightforward because Oxford is a very different system from most universities in that the colleges, there's 38 of them, are all separate legal entities. So they're sovereign bodies in their own right. They all have their own endowments. They all have their own investment committees and they all have their own what they call governing bodies and trustees. So we spent 2008 trying to figure out how to pool perpetuity capital and have external investors, how to get regulated by then the Financial Services Authority, now the Financial Conduct Authority, figuring out what assets they had, figuring out an investment policy and do all this while the world was going to hell in the handbasket. And so my colleague and I, I mean, I really wouldn't like to relive 2008, but we had phenomenal help. And I must also say at that point, the Rhodes Trust, while not a, char- while not a college in Oxford, at that point had gone through quite a period of reorganisation and one of its trustees was Mike McCaffrey. And Mike had heard from Mike Moritz what we were doing and he phoned up and he said, Sandra, we want in... And his team at McKenna were fantastic in helping us think through the the documents and lockups and how people can come in and leave. And also we had a lot of help from Jack at Harvard as well because they were the last big endowment to consolidate. So huge amount of people just on our side who really wanted to make this work. So we opened the Oxford Endowment Fund in January the 1st, 2009. And did you have cash at that point in time? No, we had hilariously mainly UK index tracking funds that would only trade on a Thursday if there was enough interest because it was a charity product. So I got so fed up with it that we sold most of them in August. And so I'd love to say I was smart, but my God, I was lucky going into September 2008. We were mainly in cash. And then, of course, it was all at a bank. And I thought, holy moly, I don't know if I feel that safe because the banks, of course, at that point. But we were lucky. And we'd also been putting some money into some of the managers I knew well from Welcome. So we had quite a big dollar exposure at that point. So we survived. We were down 12% that year. Yeah, not bad. 
how much capital then did you start with at the investment management company once the structuring of it was in place? So the endowment pool, the Oxford Endowment Fund, was about £480 million. And now you've had this experience at Wellcome that was £15 billion. You're sitting on £400. How did you start to think about the philosophy that you wanted to bring to bear for Oxford? Yeah, so um, very much focused on absolute return, very much focused on equities, if trying to grow at at least 5% compounding over time in real terms. So you have to have an equity exposure. We could be liquid, so we had a lot of experience in private equity and venture capital, so we were very favourable. We spent a lot of time in that area. I wanted to have a team of generalists, but also, most importantly, I wanted to have a simple portfolio that was pretty concentrated in terms of names as well. Manager names? Manager names, yeah, and relationships. We wanted to make that meaningful and manageable. And what did that look like when you put it together? Well, it's evolved over the years, as you can imagine, because it was really only Faye and I at the beginning. We started to build up our team early 2009. Jack Edmondson came on board. He's our deputy CIO. And then we've just grown the team over time now. There's 24 of us in the business. But not also did we have to build out our portfolio. We had to figure out how to market to investors, (laughs) write letters to investors, turn up to investors, investment committees, all while trying to build out this portfolio and our business. So it was an interesting time. So very much equity focused, absolute return focused. We knew we were going to have a big slug in private equity and venture capital. And then with our equities as well, we really wanted to have smart managers whose interests were aligned with our own and we're not there trying to outperform random market indices. And did you take that equity as a group? And it's a big part of what you do today, how do you decide public versus private? The way our asset allocation today is we don't have a policy portfolio. We have a group of broad asset groups we call risk assets, and we have ranges around which we can move them. So we have equities, and that can be anywhere between 45 to 80% of the whole portfolio. We have credit, and then we have property. Those are the three categories. Yeah. Then, of course, we have bonds and cash. Yeah. And then we have on top of that liquidity guidelines. So we manage the portfolio, what we would call holistically as one. So when we look at our US exposure, we look through the whole portfolio. We don't say we want X in US public equity and Y in US large cap buyouts. That's not tend to be. If you think about how we allocate capital, it will either be we're back in talent we're back in an investment theme or we're trying to get access to a really inefficient market. And if they all meet in the Venn diagram, that's fantastic. So start at the top. Equities 45 to 85 is a fairly wide range. So does that mean that you say, well, actually 65 is our number because it's right in the middle? And if not, how do you decide sort of where you are in that range? So you don't really have the luxury of private equity of being able to trim it so about private equity sort of varies anywhere between 20 to 25 percent and so the rest tends to be a risk appetite it's probably more reflected in the public equity exposure of that so our public equity today is around 50 i think 52 53 percent and how much does that move around other than shorter term market moves Uh, 
you probably find it moves around more over a year. It hasn't moved around recently that much because what we do when we have inflows, that tends to be where we say, actually, we're going to keep this in cash or add it to the public markets, depending on the overall environment. So we don't swing it around too much. Yeah. Now, that day-to-day sounds a lot different from a more structured asset allocation where there's rigorous rebalancing around a long-term target that gets revised. So how do you sort of find what that true north is if it's not stuck on a certain number that you've thought about for a period of time? Judgment, experience, the opportunity set. You know, can we make more by investing money today? What is the expected return of this investment? What is the risk? What is the liquidity you're going to have to take for this? versus actually keeping it in cash or short-term bonds. And how have you measured your success at that judgment? Oh, crikey. So we very much, luckily now we have a 10-year track record. And so we'd say, okay, our investment objective is to annualize at 5% real over extended periods of time. And we've done that. There will be absolutely periods where we look like geniuses and periods where we look like, frankly, look like idiots. But how do we calibrate, I think, is more, of course, you have the total return of the fund, but we go through each position quite regularly and say, okay, what do we think the expected return or outcome of this individual investment can be for the next three to five years? And sometimes the opportunity set just disappears and distressed credit has been one of these areas. It's been so tough for managers. And then as you walk through those sort of three lenses, talent, themes, and inefficiencies, Let's start at the bottom with these kind of inefficient places. What's the most recent example of something you've been excited about that fits into that particular group? The one that's really exciting, I can't actually tell you because there's not much for an opportunity set. And if capital comes into it, it won't be inefficient. But I watch this space in a couple of years' time. It just plays brilliantly to everything that's going on at the moment and our long-term advantage. But two areas I can talk about. One in the UK is long-term holding of what we call strategic land. And that is taking an asset that is currently used for, say, industrial use. And in particularly in large metropolitan areas in the UK, huge pressure on housing. And so you can see that this industrial use, where it is today through increased transport links or you know just better transport links, will eventually become housing. Now, that might be a 15 to 20-year play, but for us, for the endowment, we can hold on to that. Perhaps most top of mind for a lot of endowments and foundations is China. I mean, these markets are so inefficient. You've got to have the right managers to make money in these markets. So that would be two areas where we think about this inefficiency. And that Venn diagram then goes immediately into this question of talent. And it's what everyone struggles with and what everyone tries to identify. What have been the sort of key criteria that you and your team use to try to figure out who you want to partner with? I don't think, to be honest, it's much different from a lot of our peers. I think that's why we all sort of end up in the same groups. We really want people who we think will to have what we would call a sustainable competitive advantage. And that doesn't mean they're doing the same thing all the time, but just through their culture, their processes, their ability to adapt, we think, 
they're great investors through various cycles. We really like people who own their own businesses and who have substantial amounts of their capital in their businesses. We think the alignment of interest there is great. And we like people who take a long-term view. And I think that that's actually quite hard to find. To get the understanding of whether a manager can do that through cycles, that almost lends itself to an organization or at least individuals who have been around for cycles. Does that mean that your investments or your new investments tend to be with established organizations? No, they'll be with people who have demonstrated that ability in the past. So like everyone else in this business, there's areas where you just know if somebody comes out of a particular shop with a particular training, they've got the right pedigree. And so that, I think, is quite important for us to know and follow. But we also have a little part of our portfolio, which we call the farm team. And that might be somebody who's just exceptional, might be super young, who just is really highly regarded by perhaps people that have mentored them. They're trying to figure out how to run a business and a book and deal with investors. And so we'll put a little bit of capital with them. And the hope is that over three years, we'll see really if they can make it or not. And if they can, hopefully that would be a good replacement for perhaps one of our more established managers because you know, some of them retire or sell out or whatever. So on that farm team, how do you size those positions compared to one of your more kind of core positions? So our, our, our biggest single equity manager is about 8 or 9% of the total portfolio. So they would probably be anywhere between sort of, I would say, 50 basis points to 1%. What are the lenses that you use to decide if it's not just performance that one of these farm team managers is making it? It's how they're building out the team around them. Because often you'll have you know, one person and a couple of analysts and maybe a CEO that's come in from a prime program or whatever. And it's watching them build their organization, watching them how they communicate, how they deal with difficult periods, watching how they build out their investor base, watching when they call capital. And over the last two weeks, a lot of our managers have called capital on the public side. So it's watching them, understanding them really. And I know our team spend a lot of time with them on their positions, how they think about their positions, why they've sold things, why they're buying them, how they think about the overall portfolio management as well. So... There isn't just one thing. I'd love to say it's just a, a whole different group of things. And some of them are better at some things than others. And as a group of that farm team, are you always like, each year putting a few new farm team managers in? Yeah, what we do find is that you know, the great thing about this job is you just there's a lot of really interesting people doing different things and thinking about doing things in a different way. And yeah, some of those will graduate. One's graduated up into the main portfolio and the others are still, we'll see. We give them three years. Three years and then there's a hard decision. Yeah, well, in theory. In theory. <laughs> <laughs> then the last lens you talked about was themes. And how do you build themes into the process? So I think they're not novel. Most people have them. And, you know, one of our, I'll go through two of our sort of enduring themes and one, one is really the the shift from the West to the East in the terms of consumption and watching that over the last 10 years, and particularly in China. 
So that has been one of our themes and that's played out very well and that's been reflected in both the public and private portfolio. One we've had for a long time, although it's top of most people's agendas now, is this idea of, we called it resource efficiency. It was pretty clear to us as far back as 2009-10 that we would have to stop trashing the world in terms of its natural resources. You know, we'd have to really start using less so that we were outputting less, particularly in the area of carbon. So resource efficiency for us has been a long, enduring theme, although we've really struggled to find anything that was data-driven because I think the whole area has sort of become a bit muddied with ESG, SRI, ethical investing, and no one really knows what they mean by these phrases. But we always thought about it as resource efficiency. And if that dates back to 2009, you mentioned you invest in property. You said not real assets. Yeah, we had a little flurry into oil and gas partnerships, but we just figured out that actually... (laughs) There's some great talented teams in there, but we just thought that perhaps they weren't thinking through the longer term dynamics of the demand supply of the industry. And these are long term partnerships you've got to be in as well. So we didn't do that. We had again a little flurry with this whole idea that commodities were a good inflation hedge, but we just figured out that was nonsense. So we got rid of those. And so now it's just pure property and we buy that directly. And how have you staffed that on your team? So we have two brilliant guys who only do property. They're the only specialists on our team. But in the UK property market, it's you really have to have people who know where to find things, how to source things. It's a really small market. Everyone knows everyone. And our two guys there, both on the investment side and the asset management side, have just an amazing job for us. You mentioned generalists earlier. How's the rest of your team structured? So we have a deputy CIO and then we have investment directors. We have then a sort of mid layer, which is investment managers. And then we're all trying to replenish that with a group of analysts coming through and encourage them to do their CFA. And we like to grow our own talent. How do you go about making decisions with your team? So one of the things about our structure is that OUEM, Oxford University Endowment Management, is a regulated manager. So we make all the investment decisions. Our investment committee are there for guidance, policy, a fantastic resource to have, but effectively we as the team make the decisions. We meet on a weekly basis, but we have open dialogue. The team will all have areas or managers that they're responsible for, and the directors are responsible for making a call as to when to add, when to redeem, trim, and their portfolios. So they have a lot of responsibility, but we have open and frequent dialogue with that. We have a very detailed process on what information has to be included, but you know, you can imagine over the last week there's been a lot of dialogue. So what do you do? We're recording this right in the thick of this sell-off or maybe bouncing around now. What do you do as this is happening in the markets with your team? So I think for our team is... To me, this isn't a surprise. And I think you might have a whole generation of younger investment professionals who haven't seen markets go down. And I always talk to them about, you know, 97, 98, 2000 to 2003. And at Wellcome, we had three years of down, I think it was double-digit negative returns. That's not a nice place to be. And so it's actually, let's just understand how our managers 
what opportunities, what risks they feel that this has presented to them. So they will have a lot of dialogue, whether it's on WeChat, Slack, picking up the phone to our managers. And, you know, thank goodness not many of our managers are panicking. In fact, some of them are really quite excited about looking at their expected IRRs from here going forward. Our public managers sitting on cash. So for us, yeah, it's, you know, it's not particularly great. Particularly what happened at the month end, that's never great. But, you know, we just don't panic. It's just, let's get the facts. Let's understand what's going on out there. And then what actions might you take? So last year, we really trimmed the number of managers we had in the equity book. So we spent a lot of time with the existing managers, making sure that we could get the capacity or we were on their list if they felt the time was right to buy. The great thing about a lot of our managers is they're quite disciplined as to when they'll accept capital. And so many of them actually use commitment lines, which is good and bad. And so actually quite a few of them have called those in the last two weeks. When you trimmed, you said trimmed the roster of managers from how many to how many? So we're now down in our equity book, including our farm team managers. We've got 15 different managers now. And we had about 20. I'll have to do my maths because we've been adding farm team. But last year we redeemed or sold from six groups. Okay. And that's globally? Yeah. Yeah. So we really only have global managers. We don't really separate it into US and UK. They might only do a UK mandate, but they're sort of compared and contrasted against the opportunity set globally. Yeah. Uh, but we do look at the risk and the liquidity and the terms and the fees of our whole book. We don't have a hedge fund portfolio. We will have hedge fund-like managers in our global equity portfolio. How do you think about kind of a hedge fund strategy when the overall strategy is 5% real compound over time? So the hedge fund managers that we have in our equity book, I think of them as equity managers just with a wider set of tools to manage risk. Some of them will be great at shorting. Some of them will tend to just hold cash in times of where they don't feel they can deploy that capital. I think hedge funds is really, it's a very difficult thing to pin down. For us, it's the structure and the fees. What do the fees look like across these 15 managers in your equity portfolio? Really do vary from a flat AUM fee to one of our managers has quite rich one in 20, but actually it only crystallizes when you leave the fund, the 20. So, yeah, of course, we'd like our fees to be lower, but the net returns from these guys are outstanding. You've spoken some about some critical aspects of private equity. What are your views? I don't raise the issue of fees. I think for me is you really have to look at what is really driving these groups. Is it the carried interest and the profits they're making alongside you when they sell or do a fantastic job and make great investments or actually has the revenue from management fees got to a point where the carry is just icing you know it's a little cherry on the cake it's not actually what the organization is about and I think unfortunately what happens is or if organizations raise significantly larger funds but don't necessarily invest in their businesses, that profit from the management company can be a real driving factor. And I think that is just, 
every investor has to really make sure that they understand what is driving the managers and if their interests are aligned with with theirs. I can't say there's a particular fee that's right or fee structure that's right, but I would just say that something we look really carefully at is the management company and how much uh, P, or uh, there's usually very little L, is going into the manager's pockets on an annual basis. Where do you draw the line with the managers that you're invested with when presumably great managers have significant excess demand? Rarely it will be a fee decision. So it will be, is this fee appropriate? First of all, is the structure appropriate for the strategy? And what are the net returns likely to be after all the fees? You know, most of our managers are so transparent on the fees. I think my issue is when people are not transparent on the fees as opposed to the absolute fee levels. It's one of our best managers has always been really upfront on all the costs that are in there. And they're big costs, but his net returns are fantastic. You know, in the whole venture capital world, and you mentioned Mike Moritz, these sort of legendary venture capitalists, you'd like to have them have a lot of their capital alongside of you. But the most successful ones have made so much, they actually don't or can't. How do you think about alignment in a situation where the individuals managing your money, by definition, have to be doing something else with most of their money. If your venture fund is tiny and you've made billions, that's quite difficult. I think that comes down to the culture of the group and really understanding what drives them. And a lot of the very successful VCs have limited their investor base to endowments and foundations, and they love making money for for these causes. We invite our managers to Oxford once every two years for a dinner and they really can see and we get a couple of the professors to come and talk about what they're doing. People love that and they can see actually the impact of the profits they're making. So you touched on this ESG and it's certainly gathering momentum as a concept, particularly with climate change. And it seems in the UK has been well ahead of the US over time. How have you thought about integrating those principles into your investment approach? So we've always done it. I think that if you try and separate it out and make it a different activity, I think that's just bizarre. But if you sort of take it back to one of the reasons I think that investors struggle with it today, I think it's because Truly active equity managers know the businesses and they think about the companies they invest in as businesses and they think of themselves as engaged business owners. So they are having dialogue most of the time with the management teams on various issues. Because our managers want to own these businesses long term, they will tend to go for the highest quality managers with the best management teams. I think what's happened in the industry is if more and more people or active managers struggled with outperforming market indices because that was the mandate they were given by investors, there's been less emphasis on actually knowing and understanding what you own. So I think that there's become a disconnect between many asset owners and actually the companies that they manage. So I think this whole area of ESG has come because... There is this disconnect, whereas we just view it, actually, if 
we have great managers. We understand their culture. We know their interests are aligned. They're long term. They do incredible diligence on their businesses. They're engaged donors with their businesses. Then you generally come out to pretty good outcome anyway. But if you own 4,000 businesses in an index, you don't know what you own. So it's a funny one. I think a lot of people get a bit scared about ESG because a lot of it is has been mixed in with this ethical overlay as to thou shall not do. But for us, it's just common sense. You just don't want to be in poorly managed businesses that are going to have terrible reputational issues. Therefore, it's going to affect the stock price and it's you know, ultimately not a great thing to own. How do you view that interest in the issue of climate change in particular in, with that lens in your portfolio? So I think that you can imagine we have many engaged students and we have some of the leading climate scientists at Oxford. So for us, it's, it's always been on our agenda. I think for us, it comes back to this resource efficiency. There is no doubt that we have to stop polluting the planet. And carbon is one of these areas. So I think that industries and companies, we just have to get better at understanding what the output is. And at the moment, there's so many different standards, there's different ways of doing it. So I think that's one of the clear things that we actually have to have agreement on. And how do you measure this? Because if you can't measure it, you can't reduce it. And so I think that if we take it again away from the ethical, moral areas, which tend to be very difficult for people to get their arms around in some way, and take it actually to, look, companies just have to manage their resources. They have to manage what they're outputting into the environment. They have to be responsible for that but let's give people clear tools that they can actually measure it by. And how are you imposing that in your investment activities for Oxford? So we don't impose it. We, again, it comes back to having really, really active management. You know, we publish actually where our exposure is to fossil fuels. But because we have really long-term active management, we actually have very little in this. I think we've got 0.6 for a whole book in fossil fuel extractors. And that hasn't been because... That's actually just been a very long-term, sensible business decision. But the reality is we all still use fossil fuels. But we have to find innovative ways of weaning ourselves off them and doing it in a way that we don't disadvantage those where it's a cheap source of energy. So we've all got an obligation in this. And, And actually, we've done a lot in our venture portfolio. We found some great groups who are taking truly innovative ways very focused on making money in addressing this resource issue as well. You know, whether it's through reforming our, the, what we do in agriculture and how we shop, how we eat, all of those things. You have a whole generation who really care about this and who are buying these products. And that is, you know, a way for us to make money. And again, it was one of our themes. What's changed in the way you approach investing today from when you first got to Oxford? So I think the sheer weight of money in the market is phenomenal. The pools of wealth that are now sovereign wealth funds, big pension funds, family offices, all investing with a very similar long-term view. That's really changed. There's a lot of demand for the types of investments that we like. The information flow, the noise in the market. Everyone feels they have to react to everything all the time. And then the jargon has just increased by at least 
10x as well. And what's evolved in how you invest? You have to be very, very aware of all of this. I think we've just got better at what we do. We're constantly revisiting how we think. We're constantly revisiting our assumptions about things. When we're wrong, understanding why we've been wrong in something and trying not to do it again. But, you know, you can't be an investor if you're not prepared to get some things wrong. So what are some of those examples of things you've gotten wrong? Oh, <laughs> I think in the early days when we were setting out, we had this inflation hedging area because a lot of U.S. endowments had it. And we thought, well, let's have that when we start off because that seems sensible. And then as we actually dug in more into it and our committee were fantastic on this, which actually just doesn't make sense. Let's not do that. So that was... Was it a mistake? We didn't lose money, but we perhaps weren't as pure in our thinking as we should have been. And what was the information that led you to the decision that this isn't the right thing for us? I think particularly in areas like commodity, we've always tried to stick to what we know. And I knew nothing about commodities. We tried to find really smart people. And actually, it was really tough. There are smart people, but they get it wrong as well. And of course, commodities, when you get it wrong, oh, you know, it's, it's not pretty. So I think for us, it was learning, actually, and being honest with ourselves about how little we knew. Yeah. How about more recent mistakes at the manager level? We made one. We got in and out quite quickly, actually. Very, very good idea on paper. Young, eloquent, smart, smart guy addressing a particular market where you went, looked at the underlying businesses, great free cash flow yields. So there were two things happened. He raised a lot of money and we found him in other areas through other managers that that's not why we'd employed him to do that. And so we found him creating different business lines and also not being entirely honest with us what, what he was doing. It wasn't criminal. It wasn't illegal. It was just we really need honesty from our managers. How long did it take to assess that out? Well, it made the mistake of somebody, a placement agent, sent us a pitch with their business name on it, and that was quick phone call in. Of selling the business itself? Of selling a different line of the business, which he hadn't told us about. Yeah. So we were really disappointed, and so we had to cut the trade, as my old boss used to say. What do you try to do differently from the other pools of capital you respect the most? I think rather than deliberately try to do something that's different, I think we try and do what's right for us and our pool of capital. And that actually means that you have to be pretty strong. You have to have a very clear investment philosophy and approach, and you have to be comfortable with missing out. There is an advantage to us being in the UK and a disadvantage to being in the UK in that we've got great relationships with our endowment foundation peers, but we don't have that fear of missing out all the time. So I think we try and build on what our skill set is, build on what our investment committee are comfortable with, what our investors are comfortable with as well. And so we don't like to be different for different sake. But if you think about us compared to an ENF, we're business. We get inbound inquiries, but we have to convince investment committees to give us their money and lock their money up for five years. We have to make sure they know and understand what our performance is over that time period. We do not report quarterly numbers. I couldn't even tell you what my quarterly numbers were. So we very much, it's all about having a long-term view. 
I don't know if that makes us different. So we're structurally different. We got a lot more stakeholders or investors, and we're very much focused on having a very simple, concentrated approach that suits us and suits our skill set. Are all of those investors the original group of 30 different components of Oxford broadly? So every university will, I'm sure that if there's any university CIOs listening to this, they'll be laughing. So not only does Oxford have 38 colleges, but as hundreds of separate trusts that have been set up over the years that actually the central university doesn't manage. So we have 40 different investors. The central university is clearly our biggest and it's our corporate shareholder as well. But those are mainly from what we would call the collegiate system. We have four to five investors who have come to us who are not Oxford charities, but they are charities and we've gotten to know them either through their donors to Oxford or through other investment committee members in the collegiate system. So I want to circle back to this question of currency management. Now it's your call. How have you approached sort of thinking about the currency exposure of the pool? So it's something we look at every month. I was laughing because I was emailing Jack today about a currency hedge. And given that it's a risk-off environment, is the currency hedge appropriate? Should we lower it? Should we increase it? But to be very honest, it's really only the dollar that we focus on because although we have exposure to a wide variety of currencies, it's the dollar really where most of our assets are. I mean, even that their Chinese managers are managing to the dollar. So we, that's one of the things that, that we look at and think about a lot. But we don't have a strict formula in terms of what three things lend me to the right answer. You know, is it 120 or 127 at that point we'll hedge? It's constantly looking at it, reevaluating it, looking at what our underlying exposures are. So the liability stream is in sterling. So our liabilities are our annual distribution and our outstanding commitments. Our outstanding commitments are dollar liabilities. Right. So that's another complication that we have to manage as well. So actually our biggest contractual liabilities in US dollars. My biggest moral liability, which is my annual distribution to my investors, is sterling. So it's a mix of the two. Yeah. What are the biggest areas of growth for you and your team over the next couple of years? Gosh, I think for us, probably more on the thematic side. We've identified two or three things, all related to resource efficiency, where we actually just want to spend more time on understanding that. We've got a great group of public equity managers. We've got a little farm team. Again, that will always be something that's constant in the portfolio. We back quite a lot of new private equity groups, people, experienced investors that have come together, and I think that's an incredible thing about the, the industry is that these young, talented guys who maybe are just under the GP level but a little bit frustrated are getting, because there's a lot of capital, braver and braver at spinning out. And one of my colleagues, David, is fantastic in the UK market of being aware of who's good and that. So that's an area that we will continue to build out and develop. Our real estate or our property portfolio is an area we really want to to build out even more. It's been quite tricky in the UK. Pricing's been very rich. We might have more of opportunity now. How have you viewed credit exposure? Oh, it's been super tough. We have no vanilla 
or plain vanilla, as you Americans say, credit in the endowment fund at all, it's all specialist credit. And that tends to be with groups who can invest globally, public-private, semi-distressed, stress situations. It's quite a small portion of our book. It's about 6 or 7%. And how about cash? Cash, well, uh, cash has actually been quite high recently. I think at the end of December, uh, cash and bonds was about 8%, and it's been around that level. So as you go through a sell-off, do you look to deploy? Well, well yeah. that's why we were able to deploy capital in the last couple of weeks to the managers that felt there was opportunity. All right, well, let's turn to some closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Well, I must confess, I uh, love walking. I have a group of friends and we regularly will go for girls walking weekends. And then yoga, I do love yoga. What's your biggest pet peeve? <laughs> I was trying to think about this. Dishonesty. How about your biggest investment pet peeve? Well, I can't actually just isolate one. I think the the biggest thing is the investment industry overcomplicates everything. Overcomplication and this fixation on relative returns drives me nuts. What do you do for self-growth? I read, I travel, I meet incredible people and constantly reevaluate what we do. Drives my team members nuts, as you can imagine. <laughs> what teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Well, I grew up in a very Scottish Protestant background, so I think a work ethic, a really strong work ethic. My parents really instilled that into all of us. Yeah. All right. Last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I think it is, I hope that young women today don't have this as much perhaps as my generation, but have more self-confidence and belief because I suffered terribly from the imposter syndrome in my earlier career. I always had this weird thing that I'd get found out. Great, Sandra. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 